Can we pray together for a moment? Lord God, we gather together as sinners, rejoicing in the life made known to us in Jesus. And we ask that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and our minds, that we might know him better than when we walked in and might be better equipped to serve him in the days ahead. Amen. Do please find uh, Romans 5, if you weren't previously following it. It's on page 1132. And this is part of a a series in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, uh, And as the person who sets these uh, readings, uh, I worked quite hard to get Romans 5, 1 to 8, to land on Easter Sunday. It was a gift then when Shane came along afterwards and said, uh, what about a baptism? Uh, And I said, sure. Well, I've got uh, good news for Shane uh, this evening. Uh, You may not be familiar with uh, a full immersion baptism. And this is how it will run. Uh, Shane, we'll put you in the water and then we'll bring you up. Then we'll put you in the water, and we'll bring you up. Then we'll put you in the water, and the good news is that we will bring you up. (laughs) But to listen to some Christians talk, you might wonder why. Wouldn't it be better to follow the logic and say, isn't that fantastic? You have come to Jesus Christ. Great. Why don't you go straight to glory now? and go to be with him. What could be better? The same logic would apply to a different reading of the way that Easter worked out. We could imagine an Easter in which Jesus dies upon the cross, he is buried, and he is raised immediately to be at the right hand of God. After that, his followers experience visions or dreams about him. Uh, But they have the, the certainty through those dreams and visions that he in his spirit is at the right hand of God. That's where the action is. That's where it matters. But that's not the Easter that we read about. The Easter that we read about tells us that Jesus is raised in body from the tomb. That he ascends later in body to be at the right hand of God. We don't quite know where, we don't understand that picture, but that's what it says. So Jesus in his body is raised back into this world. And that's why when we put someone under at a baptism, we bring them back up into this world. Because there is a life to live in this world. It is not that when we come to Christ, we pass into some super spiritual realm and we might as well uh, disappear in our spirits to be with Jesus. I'm going to look at this passage in chapter 5, in a sense backwards, beginning at verse 8. Up to this point, we have learned a great deal 
about those who are described in verse 8 as sinners. We learn that they are powerless, that they are ungodly. A little later, we'll learn that they are enemies of God, and it is summed up in that word, sinners. It's worth asking what that means. When we're at Easter, when we're in Romans 5 or Romans 8 or in John uh, 3, as we were earlier, the danger is that we hear these words and we assume that we just sort of know what they're talking about. But it's worth asking what a sinner is. Would you please turn back to Romans chapter 1 and to verse 29? Uh, I'm sorry, not verse 29. There we are, verse... That's my eyesight. 25, I think. Um, The people of whom uh, Paul is talking here said they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That is the essence of sin for Paul in Romans. It is what we call, as shorthand, idolatry. Paul knows that we are made to worship. We will worship something. There will be something in the life of each person that claims our allegiance, our following, our service, whatever it may be. The problem is that because we, when we don't worship the Creator, we will worship what the Creator has made. That means idolatry. And once we sin, we lose the glory of God. Go on one page from there to chapter 3 and verse 23, if you would. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That doesn't just mean that because you sin, you don't quite get up to God in his own glory. does mean that. But it also means that when we sin by worshipping the creature, the created things, rather than creator, we fall short of the glory of God that should be ours when we are worshipping the creator. His glory settles on those who worship him. In truth, that was major part of what the Old Testament was about. We fall short of that. And the penalty, since it's a a sin against the Creator and His glory, the penalty must therefore be that we, we are uncreated. That is why the penalty for sin is death, because it is a refusal of our own creation. Since by definition the creator creates, the penalty for sin is that we are uncreated, we are extinguished. And all that matters. Jesus talks to Nicodemus in uh, John chapter 3 to a representative of God's own people, Israel. And the distinctive sin of Israel 
It's there in the Psalms. It's there in the prophets again and again. It's there in the histories. Is that they were, their whole purpose for being was to, to act as signposts to the creator, Yahweh. Instead of which they acted as signposts to the idols that they ended up worshipping. And all of that is why, in verses, uh, if you go on again to uh, chapter 5 and verses 6 through to 8, that is why Paul, who has up to now used various uh, bits of language like Lord Jesus or whatever, that is why in this paragraph he changes his language to say Christ. Uh, that just means the anointed one. It's the translation into Greek of the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ sounds like a name, like a surname, but it isn't. And if we say Christ in, in, uh, when we read the Bible, it sounds simply like the person. But once we say Messiah, we know that that's got a kind of a length to it. It's got a head and a tail, and it's gone on for a long time. This is the one verse 6 and verse 8, promised to God's own people, Israel. Now, it might be that that's particularly important to me, but just because uh, I've just come back from Israel and been, one, amongst other things, with one community for whom the messianess of Jesus is very important. But the Messiah is one anointed to be king. So in verse 6, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, the anointed king died for the ungodly. In verse 8, while we were still sinners, the anointed king died for us. Messiah is the one anointed to fulfill the work that God's own people had not done. They needed rescue from their failure. While we were still sinners, the anointed king died for us. So let's just go on to that for a moment. Why does Jesus, the Messiah, die for us? Well, he does it to exhaust that penalty. If the penalty for idolatry is to be uncreated, is to be extinguished, then when Jesus is himself extinguished, poured out like water, as he knows from Psalm 22, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When everything that is good and created departs from him, he is exhausting the penalty that is yours and mine. I think it's probably worth spending a moment, because it can cause fuss these days, on the moral power of all that. What is this? Isn't there something morally objectionable in saying that God inflicts on his innocent son the penalty for our sin? I'm I'm sure you've heard stories of the cross in which there's there's a sort of parable of the guilty prisoner and the judge who passes sentence. Now, often enough, the the story goes in that parable that the judge himself steps down and takes the penalty. But within the story as we actually have it, isn't, isn't it more like 
the judge in the courtroom saying, um, you over there in the public gallery, yeah, I'm going to put, put, put the punishment on you instead of on the prisoner. There is something morally indefensible about that. Think of what the alternative might be. The alternative might be if God does not uh, put the punishment on an innocent person. And, of course, we know this is the judge. This is God in Christ bearing the penalty. Then, really, often enough, the penalty is really simply abolished. The judge may as well say, yes, you're guilty, but it doesn't matter. I'll forgive you. In that case, we've never really understood what creation's about. It's utterly, fundamentally personal. You know the story of the prodigal son. Well, let's tweak its tail a little. Let's assume that the the son goes off to a far country and wastes his life in in riotous living, and then says, I know what I'll do. I'm so desperate, I'm going to go back home and I will just pretend to be one of my father's hired hands. And he goes home and he gets to the front door and he goes in and his father is sitting perhaps at a meal and looks up and says, oh, okay, you're back. And the son falls at his feet and says, I'm sorry, And the father says, yeah, okay, whatever, boys will be boys. Doesn't matter. If that's how the prodigal son parable worked out, we would rightly say, wouldn't we, that that father does not understand love and family. But God does understand, and love and family matter supremely. When we were in uh, uh, Israel-Palestine, our guide... Uh, was a Palestinian, uh, Arab, Christian. Uh, He actually belongs to the same church, the Coptic Orthodox Church, uh, that lost 21 members through martyrdom uh, uh, in March on the shores of Libya. Um, And he told us that having been uh, thrown out from their ancestral lands in 1948, they found sanctuary, he and his family... Well, his family did, and he came along later, um, on the top of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Uh, it's, a, it's a multi-layered building, and although you wouldn't want to put a family on top of this roof, their roof is flat, so you can do that. So we thought, okay, yeah, he lives with his family on top of the uh, Holy Sepulchre. And then only later in the trip did we discover that actually there's 138 other people in his family. It's not kind of like a family of five. He gets two rooms in the family compound with his wife and his son. The Middle East understands love and family sometimes much better than we do. God has a very big family indeed. And love, as God understands it, God our creator, has a personal, fundamental, fundamentally personal love. So it doesn't matter, cannot be part of how God operates. It does matter. He cannot say, oh, don't worry about it, forget it. No worries. 
Something has to happen with that penalty of uncreatedness. And since he will not, of course, just inflict it on a member of the jury out there, he has to take it into himself in some way. We do not keep Shane under the water. We let him come up. And Jesus, having faced that penalty, is raised to life again in this world to show that the penalty has been faced, but also to be Lord in this world. He says in John chapter 10, my kingdom is not from this world, it doesn't derive from this world, but it is designed for this world, and there will be a time when in my body I stand upon this earth and I am Lord. And it's in that light that then we can review the earlier verses of this chapter. It's the first use in this letter that Paul offers of the phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord, not Caesar. We have peace with God. Peace was a kind of um, a flashing light in the ancient world. Everyone knew what peace was. Peace was what the Romans brought. Everyone knew that you, you got a new Roman emperor, and the Roman emperor said, I have brought peace to the world. It was what they did. But now Paul is tweaking the tail of that and saying, oh, no, 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 no. No, uh, we have the real peace, and it is with God, and it is with our Lord, because Caesar was called Lord. It is with our Lord, not Caesar, Jesus Christ. This peace is not the Roman peace of force. It's a different peace but from a, and from a different Lord. But it is still a Lord. There's going to be shape to a life under this Lordship. And only as I prepared, I mean, I suppose I've known Romans 5 for years and years and years, but it's only this time as I've gone through it that I notice something. You see the train of thought that goes through from verse 2 through to verse 5. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. Well, what is the love that God has poured into our hearts? The original says... uh, And hope does not disappoint us because the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And as ever, you've got to say, well, what's the love of God? Because love of God can mean two things. It can either mean uh, the love God has for you, or it can mean the love you have for God. And I think I'd always assumed that because it just sounds nice, doesn't it? God has this sort of bucket of love. Um, and he's pouring it uh, from himself into my heart. And it's such a lovely image, so I'd always, I'd always kind of gone with that. But then I came across verse 8 for the first time properly, and I said, his own love. Why does verse 8 say his own love? Well, because actually what the love of God is in verse 5 is not God's love for us, 
but our love for God. Because when God pours out his love in verse 5, there's no particular reason, since I'm simply the recipient of God's love, why it should go into my heart rather than anywhere else. It should, in a sense, go, what's that song say? Uh, All over me. So what actually verse 5 is saying is that God has poured out uh, love so that it runs up from our hearts. God has poured out his love into our hearts, and there's a sort of overflow by the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the reason that matters, and then it's contrasted with God's own love in verse 8, is this. If you and I can have from God a love that comes Okay, because he put it there, but it comes from our hearts up to him. Then it means there's a little bit of the creation called Alan Strange or Anne Dring or Rosemary Wilby. That is being redeemed. Jesus has not disappeared off the face of the planet and said, "Um, ta-ta folks, I'll see you in glory. Jesus uh, is part of a process from God in which the bit of the creation that we know best, namely ourselves, is being redeemed. It means the creation, as far as God is concerned, is not abandoned. It's again the same point. The creation is being redeemed. Jesus rises as Lord into the creation. This world is worth it. God has done something now. So the hope that those verses speak of, isn't a kind of airy-fairy, oh, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, that'll be nice. But rather, it is uh, anchored in the now, where the love of God is real, where the, the Lord Jesus Christ has made his presence real in this world, and in the future, double anchor points. If, the, if love for God can be planted in my heart, then the creation can be redeemed. Then there is hope. And that's why we bring Shane up out of the water. He'll be saying that he loves God. But he is being set on a track towards the redemption of the bit of creation that is Shane. His past, his present, his future, his work, his prayers, all of it. Did you notice the uh, trio that we get here, famous sort of New Testament trio, get faith and hope and love? I just want to focus on loves towards the finish. No Jew could hear verses 5 and 8 as mushy sentiments. God has poured out his love into our hearts. Verse 8, but God shows, demonstrates his own love for us. This isn't kind of, you know, red hearts and valentines and... It's Easter, so fluffy bunnies. It's not that kind of love. A Jew will hear this very specifically. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Straight back to Deuteronomy. You shall love God. Now, by the Holy Spirit, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it becomes possible to do what they could never do in the Old Testament, to love God. 
As I said on Friday, it is new within the life of religions uh, in the ancient world to speak of love in this way. Finally, we are fitted to be what the Jews as signal signposts of all humankind were meant to be all along. Shane gets to love God. That was not possible till Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The true God, God as he is to be worshipped, not just any old idolatry that you make up, not even a making of God in your own image. It is quite impossible to the idolater to do that. Shane does it now, and there is hope to come of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Again, these words flow so easily through our minds, and we think it's this sort of, well, I suppose a bit like the light on the daffodils. You know, that, that, that's the glory. No, it's not. That's just a light cleverly shining through daffodils. The glory of God is when God dwells with his people. The prophet Ezekiel had seen in his time the nightmare happen of God's glory lifting up from the temple, moving over to, and and that did then look a bit like the light on the daffodils, a bit of uh, sort of uh, a glow, moving over to the Mount of Olives, staying there for a week and then vanishing. And it had never come back. No prophet had ever said after Ezekiel, the glory of God is back. So when Paul, as a good Pharisaic Jew, starts to use that language, he knows exactly what he's saying. The glory of God is back, folks. And it's no longer back on a building, but it's on you, and it's on you, and it's on you, and it's on all of us together, because we are now the new temple. So the hope to come of the glory of God means the arriving back with God's people of what they lost when all sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. With resurrection and the sign that this Messiah was the real deal, and there'd been lots of them, but they all died. Only this one rose. With resurrection and this Messiah, then the train of God's process is on its way. The question is simply, who will climb on board that train? And Shane has said, I will. Who are the sinners? All of us. Who therefore can hope? All of us. No one is excluded. There is no one you know who is excluded from the possibility of the hope of the glory of God as in Jesus Christ. Uh, look at, take for a moment, just as we finish, take a look at the panels that Martin uh, well, Martin drew them smaller, uh, and they were cutouts originally, but we've uh, had them blown up for panels for Good Friday and Easter. Many people have said in our church, gosh, they're fantastic. One very long-standing member of our church said, I don't think we've ever seen banners as wonderful as those. But I also have to tell you of the reaction of one other person, not a member of our church, who saw them, uh, not, not a Christian, and said, I wouldn't go near a church that had those up. 
Why? He didn't say. But I suspect it's because when you face the reality of what the cross was about, the reality of the curtain torn from top to bottom in the temple, you face a reality that's so much bigger than any religious idolatry. There are those in our world whom you know and I know whose idolatry will not let them say, I will, to the purposes of God. Let's not be among them. Amen.